everyone, this is Katherine Yeager. Welcome to Inspired Teams, where we're curious about human-centered organizations. There's a lot of discussion about increasing social and emotional intelligence, showing up with more wholeness as Frederick Alou popularizes, vulnerability and taking off of your armor as Brene Brown encourages. This is just to mention a few. And of course, we're all in favor of this. But really, how do we put this into practice? And how do we put this into practice at work, where we all want to work better together and build a more human-centric workplace, but where the title pyramid hierarchy, visibly and invisibly, often gets in the way? My guest, John Thompson, founded the PCO Group to address this very issue. That's PCO, People-Centric Organizations. His unique approach to fostering human development, the combination of emotional, social, and leadership intelligence, goes arm in arm with restructuring the role of manager in an organization, where some of the manager roles are transferred to other colleagues and to embedded coaches who facilitate and ultimately unlock the motivation that lies within all of us. He talks about facilitated roles versus power roles, putting trust in the process, continuous practice of learning in the moment and applying immediately what you've just learned, how a facilitated team naturally addresses inclusion, and C-suite leaders being very uncomfortable high in the Swiss Alps. Ultimately, he invites managers to let go of their traditional manager roles and colleagues to pick up some of those roles and why this is good for everyone. Oh, and a heads up. This is one of two episodes. There's a companion episode with Sonia Robinson where we talk about peer coaching. Good morning, John. It's great to see you. Thank you. You too. Good evening. Yes, it's good morning for me here in California, but you're in Zurich, so it's good evening for you. Absolutely. You are the founder of People-Centric Organizations. Could you describe for us a people-centered organization? So the goal of this environment is to tap into or release, however you want to say it, tap into and release the power of intrinsic motivation from communities of people. There's the freedom, the power that gets tapped into when you tap into the intrinsic motivation of people. That's a people-centric organization. I'm curious, what has brought you here? The first half of my career was in computer technology, selling computers in California and doing computer support services. After I moved to Europe, um, I started getting tired of the technical perspective of being in computers and wanted something more human. I went to a conference on experiential leadership development having no idea what it was, but it sounded like fun. I just felt like a fish had finally jumped back into water. And it was amazing to discover what experiential leadership development was about. This was about uh, 2001. I got lucky at that conference. Somebody said, I was living in Switzerland, somebody in the conference was in Portugal. Somebody said, you know, one of the best companies in Europe happens to be in Switzerland. You might want to give them a call. And second guessing myself, I waited a few weeks thinking, well, you know, I don't have anything to offer. Gee whiz. These guys are the best at this industry. And, but I got up the gumption one day and uh, gave them a call. And they were so gracious. They said, mm. well, if you're interested in it, let's have a coffee sometime. So I organized a coffee and talked with them. And they said, well, after chatting with me, why don't you come in and practice with us a little bit and see if it feels right for you. Love that. And I I did and and it really it still felt amazing, felt wonderful. But all of a sudden it was not a fish in water, it was suddenly a fish feeling a little out of water cuz these guys were really good right. at all kinds of mysterious stuff to me right. about developing humans. I'm like, "Well, okay, where's the escape key and and when do you have to hit enter?" And yeah. oh wait, that's the computer world. This is the human world. Right. And uh, so I got to practice with them for uh, half a year or so 
going to their um, train the trainer programs. And still, I could feel something really deep moving me, even though it was really uncomfortable a lot of the time. It was mm. embarrassing. It was it was parts of me that I had never had the opportunity to access in, in my life before. Um, parts of, I don't know, wanting to look good, generally being smart at books. There was nothing to do or very little to do with, with books and, and looking good in the world of experiential leadership development, which I now like to call human development. Because in human the end, that's what I learned what it was. It's just human development right? in so many ways. And I love that they invited you in to be part of it so that you experienced it. Come right. in, let's experience it. See if you like it. I love I loved that introduction to it. That embodied experience, I think, is really important. And so right. somehow this it it clicked for you. Absolutely. I was so deep. I was addicted. I was just addicted. And I come to find out I wasn't the only one as I started progressing in my ability to be part of being in front of clients and helping them develop with the programs that this company did. Uh, the company was, was Stuky in Switzerland. I noticed that everyone else in our company who was delivering to clients felt similar in their own way. One of the standing jokes was, are we really getting paid to do this? Mm. And to hear even the, the advanced people saying the same thing, uh, that just felt amazing to be amongst other people who loved the, shall we say, continuously growing process, the process of continuous growth. Because we, as even as facilitators, were growing along with our clients. It is that inner work of developing us as humans that is so important and yet not talked enough about. Yes. And over the years, even talking about it, becoming rather, I don't know if addicted is the right word to it, but yeah, I'm addicted to one of my hobbies is the whole what is self-growth and practicing it, whatever it is. Then there's all these words that you start hearing everybody's using all the time, uh, trust and mm. uh, leadership and <laughs> uh, listening and communication and, oh boy. And then, you know, after a while, these, these sort of cloudy words, um, it's like, wow, these words are used everywhere and there's never one answer to what do they actually mean. And what does um, it mean? It, do I trust you? You know, the whole vulnerability. Right. I think that they're really, really important. Don't get me wrong. And more importantly, right. like, how do I put that into this moment? How do I put that into this meeting or the conversation that I'm having? How do you translate, John, between these words and popular constructs and vocabulary into actually realness in the embodied practice of these? I think the key point there is those words now for me have become symbols of a process, mm -hmm. not an end goal. Love that. So like you say, what is trust for me? Well, there's no end goal. There's only continuous practice of am I getting better and more efficient at developing trust? anyone else around me. Uh, and no matter what level of trust you might try to rate that between two people, it's still a process. It's constantly uh, either rising or decreasing uh, or both at the same time and, and morphing into whatever it continues to become because there's no end point to it. Yeah, I really resonate with that. It's a journey. Some people love that phrase. I like it. Others don't like it. But it is true. It's a journey. It's a path. It's never ending. You're never there. It's never complete. Every relationship has a little ups and downs, and you kind of get back into the game, and you, you work it. I think of it also, 
I'm a music background and I love music. It's like those piano lessons that you have with your teacher. The lessons are not to learn something. It is to help you with your practicing so that you can practice better to be a better pianist. And Mm. so a lot of what you're saying is so true that it's a continual practice. We work with each other and kind of push one another in the trust department or in the, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we're working with through our relationship and through the work. Right, right, exactly. How do you see leadership exhibited or practiced in organizations? Well, there's how I see it practiced, and then there's how we would always try to help people see a new way to practice it. <laughs> so there's what, what we wish they would do versus what they actually do. When I got to work with this this company, Stuki in Switzerland, we would take executives up into the Swiss Alps, and we would put them in different environments, stressful situations, typically, uh, but not always, sometimes just playful situations uh, where we would set up a goal. And we would charge them with a challenge, you know, hey, try to accomplish this. And then our work really was just observe it. And so that can answer the first part of your question, you know, what kind of leadership did we see? And we would typically see um, natural um, energies come out, uh, who talked the loudest, who talked first, um, who, who asked others to do something else, who didn't. Um, there's all kinds of different behaviors that we would see. And so often it was unconscious behaviors, mm. although these unconscious behaviors were probably influenced by um, the uh, people's studying of what is leadership. Leadership is, is this or that. And you could see them sort of building in their habits of trying to do more of one thing or another um, of what they think leadership should be. Mm. And really what we would do a lot of is we would help them see what they're not seeing. Mm. So one common example, especially with the who talks first and who talks loudest issue is often the quiet person has been thinking a little longer rather than talking first. And so they often have quite some ideas that'll spark other ideas. So it's not that they they might have the best idea, not, not that anyone might have the best idea. It becomes a group dynamic. And so a common theme is we would help them understand this group dynamic by first letting them fail at not using the group dynamic and then helping them see the group dynamic. Gee, look at, you know, Sally over here. She was quiet, but actually she said a key element of what would have been a solution to this problem you couldn't solve. And they would go, oh my gosh, well, Sally, Sally, what did you say? And Sally would have to think back and she would say what she said. And then you'd see light bulbs start happening in all of the different eyeballs. First of all, people going, oh, did you really say that? And realizing how embarrassing I didn't listen. And then Mm. second of all, gee, I see how that leads to new approaches. Mm. Right. And so therefore, they would learn that they would get a little bit of that sort of embarrassing pain of, ooh, gee, I'm trying to be a good leader and I miss this and it makes a lot of sense. And so then the next exercise, they would be better at that pretty quickly because they didn't want to get caught doing that, you know, not listening to the quiet person the next time. Uh, Although the next time we would be sure to give them a different kind of problem, which needed, uh, which actually needed very quick uh, thinking, you know, low time frame, um, very needed directive leadership. Mm. And and then they would fail at that because there was no directive leadership and uh, because they were all trying to be careful to hear everybody, mm. uh, which is very nice. 
in the right context. Hmm. And then they would fail at that. And we'd talk about, well, gee, you needed a directive leadership because you only had very little time to accomplish this. You needed to quick, you know, step one, two, three, four, and, and do it and execute and learn real fast. And hmm. then you could have accomplished it. And they would see that and they would then ponder, well, how can we have directive yet inclusive environment and leadership that causes that? And <laughs> we would help them see that, well, you can have the team recognize or help the team recognize this is that kind of problem that needs directive leadership. Would we as a team like to have that? And that would be such a key set of sentences because then all of a sudden the team itself is deciding, I want directive leadership to be successful at this problem. And then the team could go through the steps of choosing who do they trust to be their leader. And then they're behind the leader and supporting the leader and helping the leader rather than sitting back being told by the leader what to be done. Because they're not given a leader, they're choosing a leader. That made all the difference in the world. Because when people are part of deciding how their environment is built, how they're part of their environment, then they own their environment. You've hit on so many key points, Um, choice, participation, a notion of dynamic leadership, which is a phrase that I love, and how the situation and maybe the people, the, um, there's a fluidity among that and around that. Talk to me about, quote unquote, the, the fear side of managers and title hier- people high in the title hierarchy. Everybody, of course, has their own experience. Yes. My experience had some fear in it where I have to make myself look good so I can get the next promotion in a year or two. And and I need to know what I'm doing. And um, my team is waiting for me to tell them what to do and, um, you know, how to motivate them as if it's my job to motivate them. That's a lot of burden on you. A lot of burden. I was really lost in, in that whole hierarchical perspective of a, a career path. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so embarrassed <laughs> about my time there. Um, I knew my stuff. I was a subject matter expert in the stuff I was being told to run a team to do. Right. Uh, but at the time I was running a team, I didn't have any specific training on how to connect with some people. I'm socially generally considered quite good in connecting with people. But when I have this title of the boss, which is maybe implied if I'm only called the manager, I still have this implied title of the boss. I have to know what to do. Um, Yeah, that that was suffocating. That was really suffocating. And and I didn't naturally come to it because I felt it in artificial Mm, I don't know. Artificial pressure. It's like I'm on an improv stage in theater and I draw a blank and I just don't know what to do next. Um, it, it was terrifying. Even though sometimes, like I said, I knew my subject and I could go into that area and, and do a good job and relieve that burden for a little while. Mm-hmm. So what I was excited to discover, terribly excited, and this kind of connects down to what I'm doing now, yes. actually, is um, I just discovered a couple of themes, sort of bigger scale perspectives of what we were doing when we were helping senior, I mean, executive leaders, we were talking the C-suite of really large companies, okay, some of Switzerland's largest companies, uh, Novartis, and UBS, uh, Credit Suisse, Kuhn and Nagel, on and on, okay, very alpha uh, people running big ships, um, you can't just turn them left when you decide to turn them left. A lot of things have to happen. Right. And they would come to us and we would have them for, say, up to a week. Okay. And what I realized after a couple of years of doing that, that when they came to us, we never gave them a boss. We never gave them a manager. 
suddenly there was no manager. Okay. Mm -hmm. They looked to us for direction. Okay. Why are we here? What are we doing? And we knew that, and we would give them the vision of what we were doing. And we would give them a little bit of guidance. And they would attempt things and they would fail. And all week they would attempt things and they would fail. They would have little wins and they would fail. They would have little wins again. So the whole week they actually operated managerless. There was no boss. How did they experience that? Did they like it? Were they frustrated? Did they want an end goal? Did they want to feel a different sense of satisfaction? Or how midweek, how, how were they emotionally responding to this? It was, it was a collision between the old world and the new world is the way I see it now. Yeah. Okay, it was the old hierarchical world. I, this is how I know how to operate. And it needs some kind of new operating model. We did, I didn't know this at the time. I just right. knew that whatever the process was we did, that the company I worked for knew how to do this process. And they weren't promoting manager list in any way. Correct. They just provided an environment for these people to grow immensely in a short amount of time. Mm. Okay. And there were a couple of themes of what they always did. And, and what we called this was trust the process. Okay. And the process was giving them a vision letting them fail. That was something that we had to be trained as, as facilitators. Don't step in, let them fail. Mm, right. Um, but then the process of then reviewing. And I realized one of my early realizations was, wow, this review process is so important. And did we ever do that when I worked for big companies as a manager? No, we never sat down and took the time to do a review process. Yeah. And, so, and then I started watching that for a little while. And I realized during the review process, how important it was to not have a boss around during the review process. Hello. Because Everybody has to be guarded during the review process, which completely, completely kills the growth process, right? The growth process has to be, has to allow vulnerability, allow shame. I'm ashamed that I didn't see that better. I wish I'd have seen that better. Those kinds of feelings that we protect ourselves from in the, the old corporate world hinders our ability to embrace what the growth is that's behind that feeling. Because once I was free to feel those feelings without fear, wow, the growth would just accelerate. Right. One of the things I see happening out there these days a lot is, um, you know, this trying to turn your managers into coaches oh, and yeah. learning coaching type uh, approaches to things. You know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, what I'm talking about, plenty of managers are doing many of these skills that they're developing on how to do this. The problem I see, well, that's beautiful because it develops people's sensitivity to being able to listen to others. It's significantly hindered, again, by this concept that a person has a lot of power over my career, mm. my development in this company, okay? And no matter how wonderful that relationship is or how bad it is, if it's bad, it's quite obviously everything is going to be bad, okay? If it's good, one might get a little fooled into thinking, well, I have a great relationship with my manager. She or he is, is very fair um, and you know, they, they do things in a good way. Wonderful. And that person has power over you. And while that happens, you will have a much harder time accessing your intrinsic motivations because there is always an invisible extrinsic motivation that I need to keep on this person's good side because they have a lot of power over my career, my salary, how my life is, you know, whether it's easy or hard here at work. Right. Understanding that power is really important. I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. 
Yeah. How does it, how does an individual get around this? So I studied this for quite a while. As I started seeing some of these bigger pictures, companies buy leadership development for their executive teams, also for senior management and middle management for all different levels of the organization. And they buy it and it's an event. Okay. And then they go away and they lose that environment. They go back to the environment where the environment's built on having managers, bosses, right. teams, title power. Title power, exactly. And so I started to realize or ponder how could an organization start to transition away from having that power structure? Because you can't just turn it all over from one day to the next. No. You still got to do what you're doing to survive. And, and there's so much that's being coordinated that, that's happening. Um, so it needs to be done carefully. And yeah, I would then study the, the consulting companies um, at the time, Anderson, uh, McKinsey, et cetera, you know, trying to do these large transformation programs. And I thought, yeah, boy, it takes years to happen. By the time these things happen, every, you know, lots has changed on the way anyway. How can we do this a small piece at a time? And we don't want to make anybody out to be bad people. Managers are not bad people. They're generally wonderful people right. put in an impossible position. Yes. Okay, the role, I like to say, the role is dysfunctional for humans. Okay. And once I got onto that idea that it's dysfunctional for humans, I started to study a little bit the biology of humans and discovered a couple of key points. Some are very well known. Two are very well known. One is much less known. Um, the one that about learning, you know, if you learn at the moment you need to learn and you can immediately practice what you learn and you're involved with what you learn, it's much higher retention of what you learn than going away to a class, getting spoon fed some information and then moving to a different environment, back to your home environment, uh, whether it's a day or a week later, and then trying to apply what you just learned. Uh, that has a much lower return on investment. Okay, so the training industry knows this, and, and most people intuitively know it anyway as well. But we're still hunger for training, and we'll come back to the hunger for training. People seem to gravitate to environments where they can grow. Okay, that was something I also noticed, which was really beautiful. So there, there's the learning concept in context, in the moment you need it. Those are the key elements of high return on investment learning, and how can we deliver that? because these people were coming to us as an event. The other element is we've noticed that the companies that do the best in their industry are companies that do the best at focusing on their people. Mm, right. Now, the other thing that I did not know um, from just hearing in my environment was the recently discovered fMRI. So one of the things they learned from taking pictures at different times of you looking, people looking at different pictures was Discovering that as a human, I chemically cannot focus on any more than one high cognitive function at a time. Can't do it. No multitasking. Can, no multitasking. That's it. None of it. Now, I can switch very fast. Okay. Biologically, I can switch very, very fast. But it takes a lot of energy to do the switching. And don't forget, I'm talking about high cognitive functions here. You know, where you really got to focus. Now, of course, I can pick up my cup of coffee and I can talk at the same time. That you know might look like multitasking in a way. I'm doing two different things at the same time. But it's low cognitive functions, not high cognitive, where you're really grasping at all the parts of your brain to figure things out. And so that was the key three bits of information. I thought, now, what would happen if we take these bits of information that we know as data and facts and applied it to this role we call manager? So I looked at the manager role and I said, well, what is the manager role? And I discovered that the manager role seems to be made up of three categories. One category is being a subject matter expert at something. Typically, managers are subject matter expert. You're, you're the best salesperson. And someone says, well, let's give you a promotion. Let's let you lead the team now because you're the best salesperson. So you're a subject matter expert. The other area is you're expected to organize a team? Should we have flex time? Should we have vacation? How much? How do we organize the schedule? Now, each one of those isn't 
extremely complicated, but its complication comes in, you're coordinating a number of people and you're trying to figure out how to get them to work together. And it's dynamic. Things change all the time. You get people coming and going into the team, some teams faster, some teams slower. It can become quite a, a complicated thing that needs some focus, how to coordinate the team. And then the third area is as a manager, you're typically expected to develop people. Mm-hmm. So subject matter experts, developing people, and coordinating the administration. Organizing and governance, a little bit of governance, yeah. Organi- there you go, organizing and governance. Three completely different high cognitive functions. But hang on, our data says, you know, if, if we have to split between different high cognitive functions, we are going to become less efficient. We are not going to be as good at any one of them if we're loaded down with numerous ones. And then I thought back to the assembly line. Oh, I like the story of the assembly line. Can I, can I tell the story in just a minute? Yep. Okay. Okay. So the assembly line, I looked back at the assembly line and thought, is that a good analogy from what, for what I'm discovering here about this manager role shouldn't have too many different things in it? Well, the assembly line, there was a day before 1903 when there was no such thing as an assembly line. People just put things together and cars were being built in different stalls of people building cars. And they said, well, let's try this assembly line thing. And it was Ford who was the first one to try in a big way. He didn't invent it, but he was the first one to try in a big way. And he said, okay, let's clear out a bunch of space and let's get a cart and let's put a bunch of pieces of the car in the, in the hallway here. And his executive said to him, wait, you're using more people to do this. You're using more space to do it than we use for building each car. This makes no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's just completely counterintuitive. Are you sure you want to do this? And Ford said, well, I'm buying lunch, so let's just see what happens. So he puts it together, and they start making it happen. And they suddenly see that it's one of those things where if you organize people a little differently, all of a sudden, the system becomes much more efficient. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they could see how they could produce cars much faster, with higher quality, with accumulatively, with less people, okay? to do all of these cars. They could start cranking out cars you know, per, per minute as opposed to per hour. Well, this is the same thing with management. I started to realize it's the same thing happening. If we take apart this role of manager that we've used the last 100 years and put it into its separate pieces, people development, organizing the team, and being subject matter experts into completely different roles, it actually becomes much more efficient. Just like the assembly line, it becomes higher quality in each of those areas. It actually becomes less cost per team than it does, than it costs to have a manager. And now we're talking about humans rather than things, right? You end up with much higher motivated, engaged people and for me, what I currently believe is reaching the Holy Grail, and that is tapping into the intrinsic motivation of every unique individual, helping them align that with why they're there together with the team. And how does the individual then experience this? You say it increases their intrinsic motivation. What's being unleashed so we, we touched on it earlier. This is this kind of building all together. I love how all the dots are starting to come together because earlier we talked about, for example, if you need you have a problem that needs a strong leadership, you get the people to choose their leader so they're buying into their leader. Choice. Okay. So yeah, it's choice, choice and participation, buy-in. buy-in. Participation, buy-in. So that's all starting to tap into intrinsic motivation. Okay, if I buy in, that means I'm intrinsically motivated. Um, if I'm coerced rather than bought in, that means I'm extrinsically motivated. Right. I'm coerced by I'll get more money or I won't be shamed or all of these external forces that people are really uh, sick of and appalled at having to experience yeah. uh, so often. It's dehumanizing. And it's, no, and it's no longer necessary. The problem at today is letting go of that comfort of this role called manager 
and accepting a new way of organizing some roles that together, it, like the assembly line, is much more efficient, even though the first steps might look a little counterintuitive. You've touched on this notion of discomfort. Thinking back of the, the picture that you've painted in my mind of this beautiful Swiss mountain retreat <laughs> of Wednesday when everybody's really frustrated and uncomfortable, and uncomfortable being uncomfortable, right? right? And so this really is a process of, as you said, letting go, trying on something new, which is how we grow as individuals. But it's also a process of innovation, which is, again, one of these loaded words. We won't go yeah. down that rabbit hole. But how do right. we really move forward and try something different? It is giving up the status quo, right? All of these yeah. things are... Um, to me, they're all in the same soup or casserole or whatever you feel like eating in Switzerland <laughs> um, today. These are great ideas, but so many of us are in what we know today. We have not experienced this new thing. We need right. to try something new. And oftentimes, that's so uncomfortable, we, we just won't. I'm curious about the examples of organizations who have done this or done something like this. I know of a few in the States, but I know uh, Bosch in Germany. It's, obviously, it's worldwide. They have really gotten rid of pyramid structure. I call it a title hierarchy pyramid. They've yeah. abandoned that, um, doing it in a way that's a little different than what um, that what you're talking about, but it's a stepping stone of organizing around teams, organizing that market dynamic teams. I'm super excited about that. I just would love to hear about any other examples that you know of or teams that you know of that have done this and what their experience has been. Here in, in Switzerland, uh, I've, I've been hearing a lot about Roche uh, working a lot on this. They're bringing in a lot of facilitation skill sets, uh, making sure the facilitation uh, roles are separate from power roles and uh, use, learning how to use those facilitation roles more and more to, as I understand it, uh, helping teams to become more self actuating. Hmm. Yeah, I like okay. that. Yeah. And and that's a a two-sided process of helping the team's current leader, boss, manager, whichever word you, you like using in your organization or for your team, helping that person to find things to let go of, to let the team take ownership of. Okay. And now it's one thing to help a manager to let go of a topic. And it's another to have the team take step it up on and know how to take it on. Right. Cause you know, most of us are not accustomed to taking on many of the topics of how to organize ourselves as a team. Where do we start? What do we do? We haven't grown up in a world that allowed us to do a lot of that. So therefore at the same time, you need those, facilitators, those leadership development facilitators, to come and help those teams become aware of how can they take on their own responsibilities. Okay. This is all bringing up the piano lesson analogy that I made, that I mentioned earlier. The purpose of being with your teacher once a week mm. is to help you learn how to practice so that you can be yeah, better I like that. I like that. because as you're beginning to learn a piece, you're really figuring out the notes and kind of you listen to it, a recording of it, maybe, but you're trying to figure all those things out. But as you put your, your hands together, you know, the notes, then you move on to the musicality of it or another aspect at the time that you're ready to learn that you're not ready to learn that when you're first figuring out the notes. But you Perfectly are ready to know that at the time 
when you're at this certain place. But, and you don't even know that, but that's what your teacher is there to help you practice. And then, of course, the next time you learn the next piece, you kind of, you, you get the drill. Have you, have you copyrighted that piano analogy? I like that. I might start using that one. Well, it, it works for those analogy. of us that are musicians. Right? Okay, I'll remember that. You know, if you're, if you're a downhill skier, like the, our Olympic <laughs> skiers, you, you're going to start with something else. Right, exactly. In this balance of helping managers let go of letting teams take ownership and providing teams the tools, the facilitation, so they can take over the ownership at the same time, that happens, has to happen together. Just like learning the piano, the piano teacher knows how to teach you how to play a few notes and put a few notes together. And the piano teacher just patiently sits there and listens to something that's not really music. It's just pounding of keys a little bit. But they are happy to listen to that because they know you're learning how to handle the keys. When you're done learning how to handle the keys, they'll start adding a little I think the word you used was musicality to it, you know, a little Fra flow, phrasing. a little feeling to it, Yeah. right? Phrasing. You can go to more sophisticated levels. And that's what we did as facilitators. That's what today's facilitators can do as well, leadership development facilitators. No matter where you are at in your personal development as a human, there's always potential for more. And that's what's beautiful about having permanently installed facilitators in the organization because they're constantly helping people move forward. Now, one of the more sophisticated levels that teams would sometimes reach is what I would call fluidity of roles. When teams became rather sophisticated with their facilitators, the teams could start to be very fluid with their role. People built such a level of trust in communicating with each other, not just in the words, but in the understanding that everyone around you is there to help you succeed, is there to help you become more of whoever you are and whoever you want to be. And that takes some time to get there, but it's highly accelerated when you have facilitators helping teams get there, okay? Teams generally will not get there by themselves. Really loving this notion of fluidity of roles. I know at Zappos, they used to have something called 10% time where mm -hmm. I am in, you know, the marketing department, but I want to, I'm curious about advertising or some other department. And literally I apply an internship, 10% mm -hmm. of my time in that department. I help them with ideas that I'm bringing from my experience. Plus I just develop as an individual, and I may decide that I want to go over into advertising. So is that the mm. kind of thing that you're talking about with the fluidity of roles? The other thing that comes up for me is the notion of accountability. Right. So those two topics are certainly not exclusive in any way whatsoever. Okay. Uh, I mean, I need to pr bring uh, my self-responsibility. I need to honor my commitments at whatever level I'm able to honor them. Um, Doug mentions them beautifully in his uh, TED Talk, uh, Beyond Empowerment. Yeah, Doug talks about it beautifully. We think of organizations as job descriptions now. Yeah. For this fluidity of roles, the roles that need to happen within an organization need to be broken down on a smaller level. And this is actually happening in software development environments where there is a list of things that come in from user feedback or other feedback things that says these 10 things need to be incorporated into the source code. Who wants to work on this? Who wants to work on this? And so the, the individual software developers, pick, they pick up that improvement. That improvement yeah. could be something that takes two hours. It could be something right. that takes two weeks. It could right. be something they can do themselves. It could be something that they need to develop a team on. And so this notion of fluidity of the task and who you're working with and how much time in, I hate to use the word agile, small a agile work environment mm -hmm. is really happening. I'm aware of right. it in software development circles. Yeah. I'm curious in your perspective how that happens in other functions. When you have a team that is 
facilitated as opposed to managed, then the same thing happens. The, the team, uh, they've generally well-defined what they're delivering to the organization and they get requests coming in and there's going to be requests that are sort of on the edge of what they generally provide or, or not. And there'll be visions and sparks of inspiration for how things could be improved coming from outside themselves as well as inside themselves. And the team grabs hold of things they are inspired to do. Okay. And of a team of say 10 people, you're going to have some number of things that people are going to pick up on and be inspired to make those changes and improvements or deliveries. And then there's going to be a couple of things that seems nobody wants to do. And yet those things are kind of central to what the team seems central to what the team should be delivering. And yet nobody seems to want to do that. So who's going to do that? Gee, right. There's no boss to tell somebody we got to do this, do it folks and pick somebody out and make them do it. Well, what I found happens in a facilitated team is the team, first of all, feels very responsible Yes. Because they know they're owning the delivery of what they're delivering. If right. they don't deliver to their customer, whether the customer is an internal customer or an external customer, makes no difference. If they don't deliver, they don't have a job. Right. Like, you know, whoever's buying that service from them, they're going to go somewhere else and buy it. So there's a whole deeper layer of sense of self-responsibility. And a team will gel together and call it out to, hey guys, we're getting really behind on some of these really important things. And let's just, you know, let's hunker down and together make it happen. Because if we don't, you know, we don't have a job, do we? We're gonna start failing our, our ratings from the rest of the organization. And- They self-govern themselves. Shall we say self-motivate themselves? Self-motivate, thank you. They find the motivation. They, that, that, that motivation comes. If I hear someone else on my team saying, guys, you know, we got to bite the bullet. We got to do this. I suddenly feel like a, a member, a, a connection with this person who's recognizing the same thing I'm recognizing, but I haven't been brave enough or strong enough to say anything about it yet. But they brought it up. Oh, Geez, I'm so thankful someone finally brought it up, even though I hate to face it. Right. Okay. And great. Now we're in this together. Oh, boy. Now I've got a whole new motivation. I happen to be the kind of person who's driven by uh, community energy, right? Oh, we're in this together. Oh, boy. Now my energy is growing. Okay. Somebody else might not be that way. People don't have to be the same way as that. They might be people that oh, I'd rather not, you know, and they, they can avoid it. But the cool thing about a team of, let's say, 10 people is, the, they're going to be new kinds of connections between people. There's going to be two or three people that highly feed my energies, And the, the quiet, introverted person, there's going to be two or three other people on the team who really feed that person really well. And yet we're working as a team that's dynamic and we're all feeding each other in different ways um, such that it comes together with a new level of sense of responsibility that is just it's so hard to describe. It's beautiful. It's relieving. It's lightning. It uh, makes the world uh, um, where everything is possible because you have people around you who are truly finding ways to support you because while they're doing that, they're getting supported. Mm. Uh, I love how you talk about a new energy that's released and how that energy, like little yeasts, it feeds on itself. You talked a little bit about feedback and how a facilitator can help bring feedback in, the generosity that can happen, and really showing a, developing a culture of gratitude. And are you aware of practices that teams are doing or that a facilitator can introduce to a team to unleash this and bring this out? Absolutely. And this is the art of facilitation. A facilitator watches a team, a leadership development facilitator watches a team and sees what's the weakest elements. What are the top three weakest elements of this team? And every team is different. Every team is changing. And that is a dynamic topic of what the team could be working on. What are the, the low hanging fruit of what the team's working on? 
So there could be more recognition, absence of gratitude could be more recognition uh, between the members and the facilitator happens to notice that. Facilitators are very good at finding a way to bring things up, okay? Uh, and they sometimes can do it just directly, say, okay, guys, because the team knows why the facilitator's there. The facilitator's there to help them notice things. Facilitator can say, okay, guys, you know, something I don't hear a lot of, but I don't know if it's important here. Can I just ask about it? Mm. Well, generally, if a team's invited like that, they're going to be keen to hear what is the idea. Mm. And that's the art of facilitation is asking, would you like to hear about it? So now you're invited. Okay, now, yes, we'd like to hear about it. Okay, well, that's different than you need to hear this. <laughs> yeah. I want to circle around to the concept of inclusion. And this is yeah. one of these words like Kleenex or something. <laughs> I took some time to look at some definitions of inclusion. These are coming from the United States. I know that we have a global audience here. Uh, Sundar Pichai, who is the CEO of Google and Alphabet, um, he talked about inclusion being a diverse mix of voices leads to better decisions and outcomes for everyone. So I've also looked at what academic institutions defining as inclusion so that they could bring inclusion into their culture on a college campus. Uh, this is from the University of Michigan. And I, let me just read this for you. We commit to pursuing deliberate efforts to ensure that our campus is a place where difference, differences are welcomed, different perspectives are respectively heard, and where every individual feels a sense of belonging and inclusion. As I reflect on how you have talked about a facilitated environment and the quote unquote, the oversight or bird's eye view that a facilitator can bring into a team, they really are a voice to do this. We talked about um, generosity and gratitude. Those are some of the things that really bring a sense of belonging. You talked about different personalities, right? Outgoing people, introverts. How do you see a facilitated team or facilitated conversation creating more inclusion? Managers might get better at doing the inclusionary thinking patterns. They might be better, get better at modeling that, but that's one person out of a team. So in a facilitated environment, the facilitator, while partly modeling it as well, modeling is, is less, modeling is important by asking, but the facilitator models by asking questions. Okay. okay. They're very skilled at asking questions. And what the facilitator does is the facilitator causes the team by doing exercises, by doing reflections, uh, to start to cause the team to become conscious of what environment do they want, okay? And a facilitator can easily lead them into the awareness of, we want an inclusionary environment. Here's how we define an inclusionary environment. And it's not gonna be much different than what the textbook is or what other people see it as but they'll feel a sense of ownership because they use their words to help create how they want to behave to demonstrate inclusion. So there's, you know, that's one thing to understand. It's another, to, what are your chosen behaviors? And a team can say, well, these are important for us because the team has discussed it and figured out what they find the best in that unique team. Um, and so a facilitator causes a team to behave in ways that are inclusionary. They don't tell them to, they help them to discover their way of being inclusionary. That's why I, I'm excited to say that as we have discovered how to apply the removal of the manager role, not the people, but the role, let the role disappear, let the facilitators appear, the facilitators like the assembly line, have a role in magnifying the impact of mindsets, okay? So an inclusionary mindset, a facilitator will cause a team of 10 people to be practicing inclusionary mindset. Won't be telling them how, they will discover themselves how, but will bring them into that journey of development 
So they are constantly reaching a higher and higher level of inclusionary mindsets. That's why we're we're so excited to 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 say we see how to remove the diversity inclusion process uh, problem because the facilitators cause everyone to practice that mindset. Okay, you get this sense that people are there to support you. You reach a, a whole nother level of trust that you, allows you to start to become vulnerable. Now, the point isn't just to be vulnerable. The point is to reach into where you know your weaknesses are or where you know the areas are that you want to grow in. It might not even be a weakness. It's just an area you want to grow in. And you have to kind of let your guard down a little bit to show up what you're really thinking, what you're really feeling, and allow your environment to give you feedback about that so you can choose the way you want to grow. Coming from a history of organizations that are in tech, for those, if there's any listeners out there who think like, I don't need this, I just want to get the job done. There's a right. beauty to this that many don't see. You're absolutely right. Not everybody is interested in assessing how they feel and whether they're really feeling great or not. One of the amazing things, one of the other um, topics I learned about studying the human state is one of the things we cannot stop ourselves from doing is adapting to our environment. Mm. Okay. So if everyone around me starts operating in a more and more supportive way, start noticing gee, John, that, that piece of code you wrote last week, that, that was pretty cool. That was, that was pretty nice. And I'd never heard anybody tell me that before in the last two years. Like, wow, yeah, what's going on around here? Somebody's noticing the, my detailed work that I'm doing as an engineer. Right. That, wow, that kind of felt good. But I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to work on it. But if my environment keeps doing that to me mm -hmm. and it does it more and more, I'm going to start adapting to that environment. First of all, I'm going to start noticing. It's going to start feeling good. And then I'll notice if I don't get it anymore. It's like, oh, wow, I've gone someplace that I don't get that. And the other thing is I'm going to accidentally start doing it myself. John, what is one experiment or new action that you would recommend people take if they're excited about this? I'd like to make an encouragement if I could. We've talked about a number of topics about the manager role, about facilitation, about leadership. And, and I want to make an encouragement that no matter where you are in the organization, there are simple ways to start causing this to happen. It doesn't have to be an organizational design topic, which sounds huge and sounds like it's only for the senior leaders. Um, it can be anywhere in the organization that people start expressing a hunger to participate in creating their own environment. You don't have to be a manager. You can just be a team member and say to the manager, hey, manager, do you mind if me and a couple of people try to figure out our scheduling program instead of you always figuring it out? It's offering it. It's saying, you know, manager, I'd Maybe I could make your job a little lighter and um, I could get a little experience doing that. And maybe I'm not saying in the back of my head, I might be able to fix some things that have been kind of bothering me about how it's been told to me to be done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And get a few people in my team to help me. So see, there's, a, there's an example of how I don't have to be a leader, a manager, a boss in any way to start causing this change of taking ownership. Now, if I can do it enough, I can maybe start talking to people about you know, the progression of that and that is start talking to people about how we can get facilitators to help us do amazing things. And that relieves the manager of having to do things that are really annoying for the manager to have to do. It can be a wonderful win-win thing, small step by small step to move into what we call a people-centric organization. And in that process, um, now, I, we keep talking about inclusion a little bit. We bring that up because we have a wonderful event coming up soon where we get to specifically focus on the topic of diversity and inclusion in, in Switzerland for many of Switzerland's um, biggest companies. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, and uh, so 
yeah, we keep coming to back to that because this environment of people being part of creating their own environment that taps into their intrinsic motivation solves a long list of business problems that companies are spending money on trying to fix. Change management, diversity and inclusion, uh, innovation, um, cost cutting. Um, in the corporate world, you might say, oh, we need to do a bunch of head cuts, uh, uh, head count cuts, right? All kinds of topics that just kill engagement uh, and ownership. And we're so excited about bringing a new, new, very simple structure that's very simple to move into that naturally solves many of these problems. So they just literally disappear. They're no longer a Band-Aid effect, a piece of software or a class or something like that. It's just this continuous human devo development. Um, I have this philosophy that all problems can be solved with a high enough level of emotional and social and leadership intelligence put together. Do you think it's possible to bring out this intrinsic motivation in a organizational structure that is this traditional title hierarchy structure? Absolutely. Absolutely. No problem. And you don't even have to. The funny thing is, I've discovered you don't even have to dismantle a hierarchical structure to do it. Hmm. Funny enough, you can you can have any structure you want to have. You can have a hierarchical structure if you want. OK, the trick is, if you have if you constantly raise the emotional, social and leadership intelligence of everybody, which means remove the oversight of a manager and insert the development skills of a facilitator, the emotional and social and leadership intelligence of everybody will be growing. Now you can still have hierarchy in the sense of different people have responsibility for different buckets of money and different buckets of money are responsible for buying these kinds of service. We need a sales team to be selling things. Or they're responsible at different levels of strategy or different types of decision-making. Absolutely. All kinds of decision-making. And those roles are subject matter expert roles, mm. not people development roles. In the past, it was always mixed together. If I want to be a senior strategist, I need to lead the strategy team. Or if I want to be a senior um, sales department director, um, I need to lead the sales team, but I need to know a lot about sales. Uh, that does not need to be tied together. You can literally now outsource, so it's permanently and embedded in the organization, development of humans, which used to be called management of humans. But if you call it development, you'll understand the focus is slightly different than managing. Yeah, so that's an subtle but really important difference. Subtle but important. You can now, just like you used to be able to, you still can outsource IT support. You can now outsource the management of your people and focus on the subject matter expertise that your business is involved in. And you can have a hierarchy of your subject matter experts controlling the money and getting good at saying, this is what I need for my money. And then teams will be working to deliver what you are demanding or expecting for your money. It's very exciting to see new ways to work together and how we can work better together in recognizing the humanness that we are and that we need and really have a desire to bring forth in our organizations. Absolutely. absolutely. I used to have tears with senior executives of these major billion dollar companies. And I knew there must be a way to bring this kind of amazing human growth to the masses. And I, I believe we're in a wave where we're going to be able to get there. So many perspectives of this topic happens and is happening because of community of people. So what can one person do? The one thing they could do is I don't want to give them one thing on a list to go do this. I want them to reach out and get into community with 
someone else who's also working on this because that will magnify your power to do something. John, thank you so much for another enlightening conversation. It is always a delight and, and really inspirational to talk with you. Oh, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you to John Thompson for his storytelling and sharing his passion for Future Is Now Workplace, where managers hang on to their subject matter expertise and their colleagues pick up the other roles of team organization and human development. To learn about peer coaching and get a perspective on how it works, I invite you to listen to the companion episode with Sonia Robinson, a peer coach who partners with John at the PCO Group. The show links have links where to find John and the resources mentioned. What inspired you from this conversation? Do you see something a little differently? Something that could be possible? Is there someone you can share this episode with who might benefit from an invitation to an experiment? Thank you for listening. I'd appreciate hearing your feedback and any takeaways. Find out more at inspiredteens.org.